You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, what's up, everyone? We have got a special full-length episode for you today on the weekend edition of the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Amazing conversation between the president and CEO of Rule Investment Media, Rick Rule, and legendary entrepreneur and the chairman of Equinox Gold, Ross Beatty, discussing the difficulty that comes with raising capital for small businesses, the willingness to adapt when things don't go right, and so much more. So sit back and enjoy this one. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Rick Rule, investor and speculator for Real Vision. I'm delighted to bring this series to Real Vision viewers. The idea here being to emulate the living legends part of my old conferences. In Living Legends, uh, I interviewed serially successful natural resource entrepreneurs, people who had built multi-billion dollar public companies from standing starts. The purpose wasn't merely to be congratulatory to these people uh, in, in terms of their success, but rather to profile how they built these companies, uh, what lessons they learned in building these companies, how the lessons that they learned in building these companies made them successful investors rather than merely entrepreneurs in their own right, but most importantly, how the lessons that they learned can make you a better investor inside of the natural resource space and outside of the natural resource space. I'd like to kick off this series by uh, interviewing uh, a man who is at least figuratively an old friend of mine, uh, Ross Beatty. He informs me that we've done business together for 36 years, which is a very long time. And Ross has been, during that period of time, an immensely successful entrepreneur also an immensely successful private investor. On top of that, he's parlayed that success into becoming a, a very influential philanthropist. Uh, and on top of all that, he is a good friend. I like to say as an investor that I segregate between entrepreneurs that I, ba I backed. And one way that I segregate is between those who have made me look smart, like Ross, and those who have made me look stupid, who I may interview in another interview series later, which will be somewhat less flattering. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a real treat. Uh, Ross, uh, welcome to the process. I'm delighted to have you with me. Thank you very much, Rick. Uh, I look forward to the, the, the conversation today and, uh, and hope I don't disappoint you or your subscribers, your, your listeners. Uh, let's put this in context for the listeners first, Ross. I I'd like you to describe your education uh, and your early career, how you chose that education and uh, what your first career paths were and how you chose those. Sure. Um, well, I mean, I just am a born entrepreneur. I'm very impatient, selfish, greedy, all those sort of things that make people want to start their own companies and, and push hard and, and do well. Uh, I, I, I'm very self-motivated and uh, you know, my my first really during all the 70s, I was a student. I was a great learning devotee. I just wanted to learn everything I could about everything. And I took a couple of degrees in geology. I did a degree in law because it was completely different than geology. I traveled the world for two full years of, of that 10 year period. And uh, and, you know, there's nothing like traveling in the world and there's nothing like working in the world to understand how it works. And, uh, and the history and geography, it very much has defined, uh, the, the, my love of history and, ge and geography has defined very much, I think, my success to, to, some, to a large degree and my enjoyment of learning things and learning about people. So I, uh, I finished all that in, in 1980. I started my very first company then, BD Geological, a small contract geology company. Did that for four or five years. And then I got into the public company arena because I was in Vancouver. And at that time, the Vancouver Stock Exchange, as you well know, was a small exchange. You could raise a small amount of money very cheaply. And so I did. And you were actually in that company, one of the seed investors, as I recall. 
and and uh, and then uh, really that that was a gold mining company uh, in mainly in the USA and Canada. Uh, we made all kinds of mistakes, but ultimately we found a gold mine and, and sold that for a pretty good price after nine years to a large U.S. mining company. And I was able to start again, and I started another company, which was uh, going to be a big silver mining company and another little junior company in, in a gold deposit in Bolivia. And then really the, the, the silver companies become one of the world's largest silver producers. It's a, it's a very large company now. It has about 11,000 employees, and, uh, and it's operating in, in six countries in the world. Big gold producer, big silver producer, second biggest in the world. And uh, I guess just along the way to, to the present time, I've, I've had 15 public companies, founded 15 public companies, all in the resource space, except for one which, all in the mineral resource space, except one which became a quite a large renewable energy company. I wanted to build something green and clean and, uh, and do something a little different, but still in the resource development space. And so I tried my hand at, uh, at power power development, and uh, it was uh, well. I would say it was a reasonable success, but not a not a not a home run. But uh, we ultimately built a quite a big company, and it, it still uh, sticks. It's still there today. It's a large producer of clean energy. Um, and then my last company is named after my first one, Equinox uh, Gold. It's what I'm working on mostly right now, trying to build a world class gold mining company, and and so far so good. So uh, it's been a great career. Uh, uh, many commodities, many uh, many different companies, uh, many several different teams of people as well. Um, the operating teams have been have been have been all different, and then the exploration development teams have been have been different. But uh, you know, it's been a, it's, I've had a lot of luck, and I I really feel that's my that's my biggest uh, biggest reason for success. I've been a very lucky guy in, in discovery and timing and and all kinds of things. So it's been a great journey and a, and a lot of fun. Um, primarily, my career has been that as a developer. In other words, I've been a company builder. Uh, most of my energy and effort and, and actually investment success has been as a company builder. But I did segue for a few years as into the world of just investing. When I was doing my clean energy company, I was just an investor in natural resource companies. And, uh, and actually, that turned out to be pretty successful, too. So it's been a, a great journey, a, a lot of fun. I'm definitely in the in the in the uh, the end game of my uh, my career. This is my last company right now. Uh, I'm 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 not a spring chicken anymore, and uh, you know it's time for me to do a few other things. I'm very heavily involved in philanthropy, and that's kind of my my big love right now: environmental philanthropy. So that's a nutshell of my my career. That's a great overview, and so now we're going to take it apart part by part. I'm going to begin. Uh, with a personal comment on the last part, which is where you suggest that you're in the sunset of your career. I've watched you fail retirement twice now, Ross, and I'm highly confident that while you were retired in June, July, August, and September, which is to say during the summer, that uh, when your ability to ski, or pardon me, when your ability to kayak and bicycle uh, wanes, that your natural curiosity will overcome you. And I suspect that you'll fail retirement for the third time. But that's speculation on my part. Let's unpack some of the earlier stuff that you've done. You've uh, suggested, first of all, that you were lucky. Um, you were a scientist before you were a businessman. And the consequence of you being a scientist is that you know that luck favors the trained observer. Uh, what has always uh, interested me about you. I mean, I've known a lot of smart guys. You're a smart guy. But your confidence, uh, we have a young guy uh, coming out with a, a degree, I guess, in geological engineering with a law degree on top of it. Uh, and he decides somehow that he has enough experience to become a geological consultant with no experience whatsoever. How on earth? <laughs> and I remember you talked me out of money uh, as a consequence of talking John Brown uh, who I respected out of money. Out of curiosity, where did the confidence come from to go to some place like Placer Dome with an army of geoscientists and explain to them that you had something to something of value when you were a freshly minted geologist with a law degree and no articles? I mean, how did you do that? I mean, it's just part of, I think, being a successful entrepreneur, Rick. You can spin stories. And, you know, I mean, I was a reasonable geologist, but not a fabulous one, and I, I I love field work. I love I love working in the bush. I love working in in nature, but um, 
you know, I could sell stock and I could sell stories and I could dream up ideas and sell them. I was a good salesman. That's kind of where, where that is. And I was a self-starter. I didn't, uh, I didn't listen. I didn't wait for the phone to ring. I picked up the phone and made the calls. And that's, that's really what defined uh, getting out there and getting those deals. And, you know, I failed so many times in that, in that first uh, company. Uh, you know, I, I mean, hundred, I'll bet we, I'll bet we uh, reviewed over, a, well, way over a hundred deposits before we made our big discovery down in Nevada. Uh, probably hundreds and hundreds. And so, you know, you've just got to, you've got to be able to, you know, in this game, it's such high risk. You cannot put all your eggs in one basket. You've got to have many, many eggs in many, many baskets. And if you have enough, and if you get that extra little bit of luck, which is what you need. Now it's true, you make your luck and you can't win a lottery unless you buy a whole bunch of tickets, but you know, you've got to get lucky. And if you do, then after that it's relatively easy. So. Um, a gift of the gab and, a, and an ability to part people from their money, you, you've included in that. Uh, as long as you then spend it where you say you're going to spend it, and, and every so often it works out, people will do it. People will give you more money and they'll, they'll, bet you, they'll bank on you again. And, uh, and uh, that's kind of how my career has been. It's, it's been a, it, it, the first one was the toughest. After that, you make people money, they give it to you again. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, you started your public company career, if my memory serves me well, with a private vehicle, Aoma, which was conceptual. Uh, very much gold yeah. hosted in mercury deposits in the coast yeah. range, yeah. probably a copycat of McLaughlin or something like that. Yeah. That yeah. morphed into Equinox. So yeah. your initial career, uh, oddly, was in the very, very, very riskiest part of the resource business, which is to say exploration. How did you choose, as an example, uh, the prospect generator financing model at your point in time? Most people who were starting companies in Vancouver found a property. They spun a story around it like, you know, 100 years ago, had the mule not died, the prospector would have been a billionaire. Uh, and they did sole risk exploration for their own account on that project. Uh, how did you choose prospect generation and how did you build Equinox? And for that matter, why did you choose when you had nothing to lose, I guess, the riskiest part? Uh, of the value creation chain and resources. Well, Rick, you know, don't forget the 19, uh, 1983 or 84, when we got that company going, um, you know, I, had, I was 30, 30, 32 years old. Uh, I had absolutely no money. Um, I raised a tiny bit of money, but, um, you know, money was hard to come by. So you go into the cheapest part of the business where you don't have to buy things, you stake claims. And, and, and you then cross your fingers and hope you get lucky and you have ideas. And so, for example, that mercury gold idea, uh, we had all these properties that we staked claims on. They had lots of mercury, but none of them ever had any gold. And we didn't find a single speck of gold in any, any of those properties. And yet we used those properties to go public. And once we had a public company, then I was I was doing some work on a contract basis in, in West Africa, in Sierra Leone and Liberia, where there's a lot of gold. And I went there and I thought, well, maybe this, you know, Liberia is wide open. Nobody's no nobody's been there for, you know, ever really looking for in modern with modern technology, looking for gold. So I thought, well, let's let's take let's take that first little company that we took public over to Liberia. And so I, I had a really good property there. I bought a drill in Vancouver, hired a driller, shipped everything over there. And of course, the next thing that happened, there was a there was a revolution in, in, in Liberia and people starting to get their hands chopped off and heads chopped off and it was a disaster so we had to flee um and and that was the end of that you know episode and and then i spent three years looking for platinum in canada unsuccessfully we looked for lithium we had to deal with tech looking for lithium in uh, in in the, the great basin of the u.s and we found lots of lithium but this was in the mid 80s when it wasn't worth very much so that was the end of that so i had all these you know failed things that that were that were failed projects but we kept going and i kind of had this this philosophy that if if you keep changing the story, nobody will tell you you're worthless. You know, you always give that sort of, okay, that wasn't a failure, that wasn't a success, that deal, but we've got this other deal and it looks really good and I had I spun a little story around it and raised a little bit more money. 
And then bingo, after three years or so of doing this, we finally found this deposit in Nevada that was uh, that turned out to be a, a really, really high-grade gold mine. So, you know, we eventually got lucky, but uh, it was certainly not after, not until we'd had a lot of failures. Uh, but we just kept picking ourselves up, dusting ourselves off, and moving on. And, and I had loyal investors who said, you know, as long as you spend your money the way you say you're going to spend it, even if you have failure, which is a kind of a preconceived likelihood uh, in this high-risk business, you know, we'll we'll bet we'll bet you we'll bet on on your next deal, and and sure enough, finally uh, we 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 did okay, and ultimately the company was sold at an all-time high. So every single investor would have made money in the company if they kept it to the end. So it was kind of a it ended well, but there were a lot of uh, you know a lot of frustrations and disappointments along the way. I, I might say that th this first experience with Ross Beatty, I believe I was involved in for eight years. So we worked yeah. the better part of a decade to be overnight yeah. successes. Yeah. The takeaway uh, for this first discussion in the interview for viewers, I would suspect, is the real attributes of your first success were positiveness, which is to say that when your exploration efforts failed, you didn't quit. You kept going. And something that's related to positiveness, which is tenacity. Would you agree with that, that your success, in addition to your intelligence and your ability to work hard, had to do with incurable optimism and incredible tenacity? Is that a fairly accurate summation? That is accurate. But there's, there was one extra ingredient, and that is that when, when we took Equinox public in 1985, uh, we raised the grand total of $145,000, and the market wasn't very good then. So I ended up having to raise all the money myself. And I, you know, I, I raised it uh, through friends and, and, and family. And, and I, I had my mother as a, as a seed investor, not a seed investor. She, she bought the IPO uh, uh, when we took Equinox public. And so believe me, when you have your mother as a shareholder, and every time you go over for Sunday night dinner, she's saying, well, how's, how's Equinox or what was the name of that company I invested in? How's it doing? And, uh, you know, you, you want to make, you want to make, you want to make her more than, more than she invested. You, you don't, do not want to lose your mother money. So that was another ingredient that I think was a contributing factor to, uh, to working hard and making the company work out in the end. But it's also true, you know, it, again, it's kind of like, this is a high risk game. It's not unlike gambling. You have to just Keep at it, and uh, uh, you know, it, it, gamblers' ruin is also a truism in this business. If you keep getting unlucky with attempts to find gold mines, you will go bankrupt. You will go out of business, and you just have to have that little extra ingredient of luck. And and that's luck in not just discovery, but it's also luck in timing. Because in this business, uh, it's a very very cyclical world. The tide comes in, the tide goes out. And, you know, you have to kind of be in the right place at the right time as well, because when the tide comes in, it's very easy to raise money. When the tide goes out, it's very difficult. And uh, and you've got to be able to work in both of those environments if you're going to be successful. Ross, believe me, we're going to talk about uh, timing and cyclicality later in this interview. Uh, hmm. I, I noticed that you referred to your mother. Little did you know I was a much greater risk than your mother. Uh, I was young, strong, mean and aggressive. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad that your concern over your mother saved you from my wrath. Um, you so, didn't have as big a capacity to terrify me as she did, believe me. <laughs> so now we've uh, we've lurched from one mistake to another through Equinox uh, and through some serendipity, discovered a mine which we sold to Hecla. I remember that at that point in time. Uh, and expecting a phone call from you, uh, I had to wait, I don't know, seven or eight hours probably. Uh, and you said we're going in the silver business. Yeah. So I want to know why uh, you made what I regard as the correct decision to go into the silver business when the industry-wide cash cost of producing silver exceeded the selling price for silver. In other words, what gave you the courage yeah. To build a silver company when all of the silver companies out there, like Heckler, were buying gold deposits to stay alive. Tell right. me about the intellectual formulation of Pan American Silver. Sure, it's pretty simple, right? Um, you, you, you know, you uh, you you were right that that Hecla bought my first company, and it was a share exchange. So I had to look at 
what was inside Hecla. And Hecla had three business areas. One was gold mining, one was silver mining, and one was industrial minerals. And they had a clay deposit. They were mining clay. And uh, in fact, they were trading absolutely in correlation with the silver base because they had been known as a big U.S. silver name. So they were known as a silver company, trading as a silver price, but they really weren't anymore a silver company. Silver was less than 10% of their revenues. I looked then at Coeur d'Alene and Sunshine Mining and both of those other companies, which were the only big silver names in 1994, both of them had big problems. Uh, also, Coeur tended to be more of a gold company than a silver company. Sunshine had, had, was heading to, to bankruptcy, which ultimately it ended up in. And I just thought to myself, if investors are buying those companies as silver names, then they must have no choice. So if I create another choice for them, a real company that has real silver assets and absolutely focus, an absolute, you know, crystal clear laser vision focus on building itself as the world's best silver equity, the best silver stock that would be a better proxy for investment in silver than silver bullion. I would succeed if I could do that. Uh, and so we set out our mission from day one when we had a shell company with no assets, no cash, no people, just an idea. We took some of the people from Equinox and we said, we are going to build the world's biggest silver mining company from scratch. And guess what? That just simply the, the vision was enough to bring a whole bunch of uh, mostly US investors into the company who got the stock price up to the point that I could raise some money at it. And then we used that money to buy silver assets all over the place, silver mines, silver deposits, staying focused on silver. And ultimately, you know, 27 years later, or actually it was probably about 20, 20 years later, Pan American did become the world's second largest silver mining company, which it remains today, second largest primary silver mining company. And that, that for me has been my biggest business success because it's, it's one that not only is it the biggest company, it's the one that really has 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 proven the, the value of staying laser focused on a simple story, executing it well, and ultimately being right that if you do execute these things well, investors will come, support you, and you can all build a, a very successful business together that today is a big dividend producer and a, and a real nice generator of wealth for a lot of people. So that the listeners understand the magnitude of this success, uh, if my memory serves me well, your first public financing, which I had the good fortune to participate in, was at 50 cents. Uh, and you yeah. talk about the ensuing 29 years. But the truth is that uh, six years after that 50 cent financing, if my memory serves me well, the stock was over $40 bid. Uh, not not quite ten years later, but it did hit. It did hit. Actually, it hit almost fifty dollars bid in the. I think it hit fifty dollars about two thousand seven, or maybe it was the two thousand eleven run. There were those two big bull runs there. In any case, it, it did pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it it was truly successful. One of the things that really interested me in Pan American, uh, a lesson that you employed then that you've employed since too, was your intuitive understanding that you had to have scale, right. that you had to have mass. You were willing to buy lower quality projects at the beginning of the exercise to build mass. And then you did a great job uh, of using that mass to increase your trading liquidity, lower your cost of capital, buying higher quality projects, uh, and yeah. disposing of, when appropriate, the lower quality prospects. So if you could talk something about the advantages uh, of scale, yeah. the amalgamation uh, process, and, and the discipline uh, that needs to be employed in the amalgamation strategy to build a company like Pan American from a standing start. Sure. Well, I think, uh, you know, we did it with Pan American. We did it with the renewable energy company, Altera Power. We have done it with Equinox Gold in, in recent years. Uh, Equinox just started at the beginning of 2018. So it's just uh, not even four years old now, but we're in one of the world's, I guess, top 20 gold producers already. Um, it's it's so, super important to build scale and it's more important today than ever, Rick. Uh, I would say it's way, way more important today than it was even even in the 90s. Uh, 
And that's because the investment market has changed over the years. So scale has always uh, been a good idea. It's particularly good today because there's a lot of investors who simply will not buy the small companies. They only want to buy through ETFs and other forms of, uh, you could say, uh, uh, non-value oriented uh, fund, funds, uh, investment funds. Um, and so you can't get into those pools of capital unless you're large. So that's one reason. Number two, it's a much more expensive game today to build a public company in the resource business. So if you have small production or a small vision or a small project, you're always going to be burdened with a very high administrative burden to pay for all the regulatory costs, the accounting costs, the legal costs, all those uh, overhead costs that, that a company has to pay today. And then you have the bit in this game, it's a very risky business. So the larger you are, the lower risk you have per se, the more you have uh, an offset from problems in either a country or a project. If you have five projects in five countries, one country might go topsy, which happens all the time these days. And you're still going to be okay because the other four countries are going to kind of buffer that, that, that high risk uh, problem save you've got. Or if you have five deposits, you have one in a place where you might have environmental or social or, or crazy problems, and the other four are going to buffer that. And I've certainly experienced that in the last few years with, with my gold company. Um, and so scale is important. It's, uh, it means there's a lot more money that goes to investors as opposed to third parties through services and overheads. It means you have larger pools of capital, you have a lower risk profile. Uh, it's just a better, a better business uh, uh, strategy, I think, today than, than it's ever been. And so we're going big and, uh, you know, the, the, the bigger you are, the larger the pools of capital that are available for investment. And I think uh, everybody, everybody wins in that sense. You have better multiples. Uh, typically, you have much better multiples. The, the bigger you are, the more of a, of a dividend producer you might be or more of a earnings machine you might be. It's, it's just good business today more than it's ever been. Uh, Ross, I would suggest that it's going to become even more important given now the market's accessibility throughout the market financings, the ability particularly for U.S. listed companies to access the volume on the New York Stock Exchange and do financings almost on, the, on an as-needed basis, the ability to monetize volume, yeah. stock market volume suggests that the advantages of scale, particularly uh, when combined with a U.S. listing, uh, are increasingly important in building all countries. True. Any comment on that? Okay. All true, all uh, true, all true. Just more uh, reasons to, to, to build scale. I, I want to get away from scale a little bit to focus on discipline uh, because I think one of the lessons in Pan American that will be useful to our listeners uh, was your discipline in general and administrative expense. We used to joke, Ross, that you threw around nickels as though they were manhole covers <laughs> and that thriftiness was meant as a, as a compliment. Uh, I, I won't mention the competitor, but we published years ago, we meaning me, uh, a study comparing you with a mid-sized gold company and your general and administrative expense was a quarter of theirs. Yeah. They were a multi-system operator. If you could talk something, uh, if you could talk to the importance of discipline uh, and where investors might look uh, to see that discipline reflected and how important when you're making third-party investments now, uh, the ratio between disciplines to AU, dis, uh, pardon me, GNA to AUM uh, or GNA to EBIT, uh, how important that is to you? Well, it, I've always felt that uh, my company's money is, is investors' money, is the shareholders' money. It wasn't my money. And so, you know, it was just an obligation for me to be as frugal as I possibly could with it and spend it, you know, as, as much as possible where it was going to have the best value, which is in the ground, drilling holes, doing field work, as opposed to places that didn't create wealth at all. They dissipated wealth, which is overhead. And, um, you know, today it's a different world. I mean, you know, I always used to pay, pay our, our team through trying to you know, trying to pay at the lower quartile or lower half, certainly, of, of, of general pay scales, but make the job happy and make it fun and make it successful. And so people weren't just working for money. They were working in an environment that was a lot of fun and very successful. It's more difficult today. It's much more difficult today because you have all of these, you know, these, and I, and I, 
this is probably going to be a rant, um, you know, these compensation committees who are simply burdened by the, the laws and the, and the regulations and the policies that now exist to hire third party, uh, you know, third party consultants who tell them how much they're supposed to pay the CEO and the COO and all the, the, the senior teams. And it's a it, it, it's an inexorable process of leading to higher and higher and higher salaries and compensation levels, higher bonuses, because they're always trying to get to the P50 level of, of compensation. And if somebody is paid below the 50% uh, average, they bring them up to that, which brings everybody up. And over time, that causes higher and higher and higher salaries. And it's got completely ridiculous today. So it's a uh, it's a big problem in the whole industry where compensation levels today are, are they're basically out of control. And I think that's true in almost every public company, but certainly in the resource sector, it's it's true. So that so today it's I, I, I'm I'm I can't do what I used to be able to do, Rick, uh, where really we could screw down costs as much as possible um, and, and pay people in, 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 in having fun as opposed to just a bunch of money. Now we have to kind of do both. And it's 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 harder to have that low overhead profile that we used to have. But certainly everywhere possible, um, you know, to have a reputation for being frugal is, is something I wore very proudly on my on my on my sleeve. I think the uh, fact that you care, Ross, is very indicative. Uh, and the next thing I want to do, I want to talk about in the context of Pan American Silver, is your own presence uh, and the importance in growing big public companies of adult supervision. Uh, I look at the success of uh, Pan American Silver relative to other silver companies, and I note that you have continued as chairman, then non-executive chairman, but you've always been in place. Uh, yeah. I believe personally that uh, adult supervision, which is to say some living human being, not a committee involved who yeah. is ego involved and has a large stake, is one of the most important ingredients that a third party investor can avail himself or herself of. Uh, would you agree with that, first of all? And when you are investing with third parties, how important is that? leading personality, that adult supervision in your investment decision? Well, I think if you do an analysis of successful companies, you'll find almost always the really successful ones have some kind of champion, some sort of, a, you know, an individual who is uh, who's really the, the, the leading light of the company and who's really able to direct what goes on through as much personal willpower as anything else. And, you know, if a company loses that, it drifts into more of a bureaucratic world, which is more inefficient less productive, less successful in the end. And uh, especially in the, in, the, in the growth years, you know, a company has all of these phases. It has the startup, the growth, and then the kind of this status quo or, to, or, or steady state operation with, which is always self-funded through earnings. And, uh, and in that growth period particular, you need that driver. You need that individual who can cut through all the garbage that involves, is involved in running public companies or, or for that matter, any company these days and just always be focused on the mission, always be focused on where they're trying to get to, as opposed to this god-awful process of, 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 you know, the world of public companies these days, which is so much more process-driven and less focused on wealth creation. And, and you've just got to be able to cut through that and go, and go to where you want to get to and hope that you've got your timing right and your success right and hope that you actually end up uh, pulling it off. Value creation. So let's follow value creation. The next adventure uh, that we want to talk about was the creation of years that did the most to enhance my personal value, for which I uh, am appreciative. I want to move on now to uh, Lumina Copper. I realize that that success happened concurrently with Pan American, but I think we've beat the silver business to death. Let's move on to the copper business. Explain to me how you decided to build uh, a major copper company and how the conception and the outcome of the copper company. In other words, you didn't set out to build, you didn't set out to recreate Freeport. You set out to take advantage of a certain set of market conditions and a certain asset. So uh, take us through an overview of the thought process that led to the creation of Lumina Copper. Uh, take us through the quantum, how much money you started with and how much money you liquidated all of the parts 
for. Sure. Uh, sure. And tell us how you caused that to occur. Briefly, of course. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to abridge all these uh, long, it's like a long story, but I'll try to do it quickly. So even Pan American, you know, we started Pan American when the silver price was five bucks an ounce. I was confident that it was going to be over $10 in a few years and that everything we bought was going to have much greater value. Uh, of course, 10, you know, six years later, 2000, the silver price was uh, was less than it was when we started. But then it really had a lovely run. From 2002 on, it, it ran all the way to $50 an ounce. So it was ultimately, a, uh, it ultimately worked. And so it was getting in kind of at the right time and working hard and building assets for when that happy moment came, when the whole market took off. And so in, in 2002, kind of the same thing happened in copper. Copper you know, was, was at an all-time low. 2001, 2002, copper was at an all-time low. Uh, 40, uh, I guess it was about 60 cents a pound. Um, nobody wanted to hear the word copper. There were all kinds of deposits around that were that were worthless, and uh, I decided I go I go against the grain. I'd be a contrarian and I'd buy as much copper as I could because copper is a cyclical metal, and this is a cyclical world we're in. And uh, and sure enough, uh, to make a long story short, we acquired about ten deposits over a couple of years. And in 2003, the market turned from a bearish market to a bullish market for copper. Copper rose, and by 2014, I think we invested 200 million dollars in in what turned out to be six different copper companies that all came out of the first Lumina Copper. Uh, and we sold all six of those companies for about $2 billion. So it was a real nice gain, and, uh, and we all made out like bandits. The, the supposition in resource-based businesses, of course, that you have an entrepreneur who comes with a good story, uh, but ultimately he or she makes their money by looting widows and orphans. Uh, that isn't what you did. You bought copper deposits from the yeah. biggest copper companies in the world. And later in the cycle, you sold copper sold deposits right to the bigger <laughs> copper companies in the world. How is yeah. it that Ross Beattie became a pawnbroker to the copper industry? What, did, what is it that you knew about copper or knew about cycles that the biggest mining companies in the world, or at least the bureaucrats who ran them, didn't understand? I mean, I don't know, Rick. A two-year-old could have looked at the could have looked at the, uh, the 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 copper price chart from 2000 from let's say 1945 to 2002 and just seen a beautiful series of sine waves with increasing amplitude, and we were right at the very bottom. In fact, we were we were at an all-time low in real terms. So, I mean, how clever was it a strategy to 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 say that the copper base is going to go up again? I mean, I it it was like a it was like so simple a, a, a concept, and yet at that time nobody wanted to hear the word copper. And this is the world we're in. People are short-term investors. They don't look at the forests; they see the trees. They get buried in the trees. The same thing's happening today with gold. It's just unbelievable how people are getting kitted by this noise, this short-term noise that's going on. That 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 means they don't look at the big picture and realize that. You know, we're in a very, very bullish environment for gold. It was exactly the same in 2002 with copper. So I was able to buy these copper deposits for nothing. Uh, and, and ultimately, you know, they all became really, really worthwhile. In fact, some of them are huge mines right now, one in particular in, in, in Chile. So I don't know what it is. I just, I just, it, it staggers me how, how, how people don't somehow look around and get away from the day-to-day the, the -day stuff they're doing and think long-term and understand how the world works and how cycles work and how industrialization in, in China is more important actually than what's going on in the U.S. and from the standpoint of commodity demand. But they just don't. They just don't. They're too focused on their own little, little worlds. So we're back to timeliness and tenacity, aren't we, Ross? Uh, yes. It, yes. it occurs to me, looking back at the success that I've enjoyed investing in you and your companies, that uh, while the quantum of the success was large, several 10-baggers, uh, the duration was, in every case, uh, the shortest was probably five years, yeah. much more commonly seven or eight. And yeah. when I look back, uh, each company, I think, that I've been invested in with you fell by 50% mm -hmm. or more yep. uh, at least twice. Yep. during the period of time that I've owned yep. them. And sure. I really want the people listening to this interview to come away with the sense that the search for a 10-bagger that doesn't happen over a long weekend, and it doesn't happen without substantial volatility. And if you don't have the courage of your conviction, both in, times with, with, both in terms of duration and dimension, that you won't enjoy the, the type of success that you've been able to deliver over time. 
after the sermon now, I want to move on from what you have done, uh, your successes. We don't have time to talk about all of them today, but I want to talk to you now about what you're doing today, what companies you're particularly involved in. You don't have to tell me your whole portfolio, but the ones that you believe are indicative of what you're trying to accomplish, your big positions, why you entered into these businesses, what your unique business strategy is, that, that type of thing. Talk your book, in other words. Well, I don't have to name names particularly. Um, sure you I, do. Oh, well, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, there's a bunch of names. Right? I, I, never I mean the ones you're really involved in. I don't want the whole portfolio, but the ones yeah. that you think are indicative for lessons that you're involved in. So you have to remember that I'm both today primarily a developer, but also somewhat of an investor. And I have been, had those two kind of hats. And they're different hats. One, you can exit as an investor. You can buy and you can sell anytime you want, and you're out. And nobody knows, nobody cares. But if you're a developer, you've got your name on the company, and you can I can only sell once. I can only sell if there's a happy ending, somebody buys the company, or if I decide to check out the way I've done with Pan American and actually just retire and let the company continue on as a big, big company that's going to live longer than me. Those are the two, the two outcomes for those two sort of businesses. So as a developer, uh, you know, I have my clean energy company, it's called Interjex, and it's Interject Renewable Energy. It's a big, big Canadian company now, 4,000 megawatts. It's a great company. I'm very active uh, on the board. I'm a, one of the largest shareholders. That's fun. I really enjoy that business, uh, making electricity from clean, clean, clean sources like wind and solar. Then I have my big gold company, Equinox Gold. I'm very involved in that because for no particularly good reason, except I just love gold and I love creating wealth. And I think the business strategy is dead easy and dead simple to build a really huge gold mining company today to make a lot of people a lot of money. What's that dead uh, easy strategy, Russ? The dead easy strategy is to go big. It's to go big and be a big operator, produce a ton of gold, have huge gold reserves and resources. That's how you get leverage. So. If you remember back in 2001, gold price was, you know, whatever, it's $250, $300 an ounce. It went up about 350% in the bull run that followed that. Gold equities went, over, went up more than 1,000%. And that's what you want to do when you create a mining equity that has leverage to a metal, is you want to have a, a, a much, much better uh, capital gain or a gain potential than just the value of the commodity. So we've just loaded up Equinox. We're producing 600,000 ounces today. We are going to produce 1.2 or 1.3 million ounces in a couple of years. We've got 29 million ounces of gold in reserves and resources. It's just a beautiful company. We've built it in three and a half years. And, and you know, I've got, I've got a few more years to go and we're just gonna keep going because I'm convinced the bigger you are in that business, the better it's going to be per se. So I'm very active in that company. And then I've got a couple of small uh, gold exploration juniors that I'm active in as a sort of a developer and a very large shareholder. Lumina Gold is one. Luminex Resources is one. I'm an investor, on the other hand, in in some juniors like uh, like uh, like Eero, Eero Copper, like Amerigo Copper. I've got some copper businesses like that. I've got some gold investment companies like Osino. Um, um, Orca Gold, th those are those are some companies where I've got lumpy positions, ten or twenty percent stakes, and that's what um, that's that's for me important because if I do have a gain potential, then it's going to be material to me. So I take big positions and I stick with them, and I in, in, in investment games, I'm really just looking for an exit once, and hopefully with every other shareholder. Uh, and that's happened again and again. We've had, we've had, I've had happy endings in that sense just about every year for the last, you know, 10 years with one company or another. That all, all those investment companies kind of look the same. They all look like they're big, big deposits, uh, a lot of expiration potential, big enough that a major company is going to want to buy them. And that's generally speaking what happens. So that is the category. They're well run, smart people running them, long term focus. Um, and just holding them on, holding on to them until that happy ending comes. That's that's been my investment strategy there. And on the other side, you know, just trying to execute the business. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Which is usually pretty simple. I hope the uh, listeners replay 
that last soliloquy three or four times. Uh, that was the first part of the interview right there. I want to move on, Ross. Uh, I believe there are at least two kinds of wealth. One, of course, is material, and the other is what I might call honor. Uh, in addition to the fact that you've been a very successful businessman, or perhaps as a consequence of the fact that you've been a successful businessman, you have become a very uh, committed and, I would argue, successful philanthropist. If you could talk something about the acquisition of honor as opposed to the acquisition of wealth and what it is that you're doing in philanthropy and what causes are important to you and also how you've been, been a success as a philanthropist. I've learned myself that giving away money, at least for me, is substantially harder to be successful at, at least as I define it, than making it. Now, perhaps I've tried harder at making it, but this is not about me. This is about you. Honor and philanthropy, what you're doing. Well, thank you for that. I, I'm uh, again. It's pretty simple. I, I'm. Uh, I have a pretty simple life. I, I don't have a huge spending quotient. My happiest times are when I'm camping and kayaking with my wife, and and doing uh, things where I sleep on the ground and and cook my own food. And and I have five kids, and they're all kind of grounded pretty well themselves. And so you know, my wife is an anti-consumer, not a not a consumer at all. So we 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 don't go through a lot of a lot of money, and and we have a simple life. So. You know, we grow all our own food in our garden, and and uh, I keep bees and chickens, and so it's it's a it's for me a pretty pretty nice life. But I've made all this money, and you know you know I don't want to particularly die with it all. So um, the result is that I just to give it away. It's I find it very easy to give away because I've I've made it pretty easily, and and so easy come, easy go. But I've I believe like in business, uh, if you're going to be a successful philanthropist, you want to focus. You want to have a real focus that is meaningful to you. And my personal focus is on the environment. I'm a passionate environmentalist because I love the beauty of nature. I seek best my solace, my happiness in nature all the time. And thus I want to protect it as much as I can, as I can look after biodiversity, stop the uh, destruction of biodiversity that humans have wrought for so many years and try to restore some order to the natural world. So in that box, now, no matter what you do as a philanthropist, you sh you're going to go to heaven. You're you're a good person. You, I, I I honor and salute you. My little box, because I like the focus. Don't forget, I like to put you know I like to put energy into something and get good at, at that. Know the space, and not be a shotgun where I'm giving a little bit of money to a thousand different places. So. We have a foundation called the Sitka Foundation. My daughter runs it as a family foundation, and we're funding about 75 different groups across Canada, some in the U.S., some internationally, all about protection of the environment and some attempt to protect biodiversity, the loss of biodiversity. So, you know, we do that in a, in a focused way, and people know where we stand, they, and I can answer the phone, and if it's a ask for money for a church or a hospital or a school, I say thanks, but, you know, go somewhere else. I'm, I'm looking after the environment, and that's... I think in a way you could say that's a more successful strategy than having a shotgun approach. But everybody is each to, each to their own, right? I'm not telling anyone else how to give their money away. That's how I do it. And it's working well, and I'm very proud of it and happy about it. And I'm particularly happy when, you know, I can see some kind of tangible result, which I actually see when I look out from my home here in the, in the Pacific Ocean right in front of me, and I see it improving over the years, not getting worse. And that makes me very happy, and it makes me feel there is, there are solutions that will improve the condition of the environment. And ultimately, of course, the connection is better environment, healthier for my own kids and their kids and their kids. So it's a people thing as well. Um, we all have to live together in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a synchronized way, not, not a situation where one species destroys the rest of the others. I've asked you to name some names in terms of your investment portfolio. Do you, I know that Sitka your private foundation doesn't raise money from third parties, but you give money to organizations that do. Do you have any names that our listeners might consider if they were interested in environmental philanthropy? Oh, for heaven's sakes, there's, there's tons of them. Um, as I say, we're, we're invested in 75 different groups right now, at least. Um, and I, and I do, do the environmental philanthropy in kind of four areas, Rick. One is just pure land conservation. And in that area, there's the Nature Conservancy of, of, of the U.S., of Canada, the Nature Trust. Uh, I'm the chair of the B.C. Parks Foundation. The next box is sort of scientific research, where we actually try to work on real solutions that come out of real problems that are measurable. So I'm the director and funder, big funder of the Pacific Salmon Foundation, for example, looking after salmon health. We also do education. 
Uh, we have a big, uh, big biodiversity museum at the University of British Columbia. We're building another one in uh, Dalhousie in Eastern Canada. And so that's great for bringing school kids into seeing the beauty of nature and, and how to protect it. Um, and then public policy, you know, quite frankly, uh, public policy is, is really, really helpful in, in addressing things like climate change and, and the loss of biodiversity, creating more parks, creating more, more, more protected areas. So there's all these things and there, and there, there's, I mean, there's a myriad of groups um, um, in every one of those boxes. Universities, of course, do good, good, good work. Uh, uh, you know, there's, it doesn't matter where you are, you're always going to have many, many different ways to be a good environmentalist. The Sierra Club, David Suzuki Foundation in Canada, uh, lots. I'm not talking about social justice. We're not that big on that. I'm not talking about um, about uh, helping Ethiopian refugees, particularly. You know, that's not what we do. We do pure environmental stuff, looking after the millions of species humans rely on to be healthy. Ross, we're just about out of time, but I really want to personally thank you for subjecting yourself <laughs> to this interrogation by someone who I hope is still your old friend. Uh, you I'm... are my old friend. You always will be, Rick. And I'm grateful for all of our years together, both as investors and as friends. I hold you in at least as high regard as you may hold me. And um, and it has been a great journey together through all these years, Rick. I, I, I'm your greatest fan. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope uh, those of you who have list listened to this interview have both enjoyed it, but more importantly, uh, gotten direction and insight from it. Uh, I'm going to continue this series uh, and interview other serially successful entrepreneurs in the natural resources space for Real Vision. In the interim, any of you who would like to get in touch with me specifically about your resource investments, I'm always willing to grade individual portfolios. This is my commercial, by the way. Uh, contact me at ruleinvestmentmedia.com. Give me your resource portfolio. I'll rank it personally, one to 10, one being best, 10 being worst. Hint, you'll do well if they're Ross Beatty companies. Uh, <laughs> if you care, uh, mention charts in the comment line, and I will send you the Barron's Gold Mining Index, which is the best long-running chart on the anatomy of a gold bull market that exists. And I'll send you another chart, a 100-year commodity chart that talks about just how expensive or cheap commodities are relative to other asset classes going back 100 years. Real Vision, thank you. Ross Beatty, in particular, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen who are Real Vision subscribers, thank you, too. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Real Vision subscribers can always find more amazing financial content like this at realvision.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.